Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and I'm going to read some verses from chapter 49 this evening. This is concurrent with a series that we've been going through in the book of Genesis on the life of Jacob and Joseph. Really, it's a story about God, but it is God telling his story through this family. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter, and this is the 49th chapter. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And then, I'm not going to read all of the, the text as Jacob prophesies the future of his 12 sons that are gathered around his bedside. They are, first of all, the six sons of Jacob's first wife, Leah, his unintended wife that Laban snuck in, and he was married to her without knowing it at first. And then followed on that are four more children that come from Jacob's handmaids, two women in his household. And then after that, to make up 12, there are two more children that come from his beloved wife, Rachel, and that is Joseph and Benjamin. And all of the heroes of Israel, all of the people, that you, the names that you would know so well from the stories of the Bible, all come from these 12 men. And this chapter is the first reference, the first uh, identification of what's called here by Jacob the tribes of Israel, which is a very significant turn in salvation history and in human history, actually, and the influence that it has had upon the world. Reuben is someone that you will, who's the eldest, the firstborn, was a brutal man, and you would look in vain to find anybody from the tribe of Reuben who ever served as a king or as a prophet, as a leader, as a judge, or a priest in Israel. Uh, he was completely uh, banned from those kinds of significant roles within the tribes of Israel. Uh, Simeon and Levi are the next two, and they also were scattered amongst the 12 tribes of Israel for their brutality in the history of the family of the life of Jacob. And so it's a very interesting perspective that this father has on his 12 children. He knows his children intimately, but he is more than just knowing his children. He's prophetically speaking over their future. And Simeon, as I say, was scattered amongst the tribes, and so was Levi, scattered amongst the 12 tribes. But Levi was redeemed mercifully, wonderfully, in his zealous zeal for the Lord at the incident of the golden calves. And they strapped on their swords, and, and they said, we are on the Lord's side. And so Levi was dispersed through Israel, but as priests. And so you know a lot of the names uh, associated with Levi. Of course, Moses, Aaron. Uh, John the Baptist uh, was a Levite. And next comes Judah, a name that uh, you're probably very familiar with. And the line of David, the reign of David, David and Solomon and his children, where David or God promised him you would always have uh, someone on your throne. And that leads to, of course, Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And Zebulun and Issachar, the fifth and sixth children of, of uh, Leah. And then Dan. Dan Samson was a Danite, and Gad and Asher and Naphtali, number of leaders came from Naphtali, Samuel, uh, no not Samuel, um, Elijah came from the region of Naphtali, Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges come from Naphtali, 
and then Joseph. And Joseph uh, later on would be represented in the tribes of Israel by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And some of the really bad kings came from Joseph's family, uh, like Jeroboam, who split off from, from Solomon and rebelled and went to the northern and the ten tribes of ten, ten of the tribes rallied around him. Uh, but also Samuel comes from the family of Joseph, Gideon, Joshua come from the family of of Joseph, and lastly there is Benjamin, the youngest, who Jacob spent so much time fretting over and fearful of his future. And of course King Saul was a Benjamite, you would recall from the stories, and also the Apostle Paul ascribed his lineage to the tribe of Benjamin. These are the tribes of Israel, and it is the first identification of the tribes of Israel in the course of Revelation, the very, very significant text. It's actually in a pretty obscure text. I've never preached from this. You've probably never heard a sermon from this text. But in terms of its biblical and historical significance, it is very, very large. And then verse 28. I will read, and you'll notice that it uses the word blessing three times. So there's not only prophetic utterance where he says, gather around, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. He concludes his words with these very definite words of blessing. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. There it is, the first mention. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And this is... God's word. Lord, you are great. So great. We are not. So not. Help us, I pray, to come into the shadow of your greatness by faith and yet with confidence. Help us to think of these things through New Testament eyes and the glory and the revelation of Jesus. This fulfillment of all that God intended through these 12 tribes. So help us and guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name. These words, let me just say something right off the top that kind of summarizes what I want to say about this particular text. That what Jacob is doing over his family, very significantly, is identifying and looking for God's ownership of his children. And Ownership is a significant thing in the life of, of all of redemption history. It is what being a Christian means. What, what it means to be a disciple is to be owned by God all the time. Imagine if the apostles or the disciples had said, well, Jesus, we'd like to be with you during the day, but on the night we'd kind of like to do our own thing. <laughs> no, they, they, Jesus came to take possession of his people of God's people as a shepherd. That's what this table's all about, that God has come to purchase and redeem, take ownership of his people. Now, when humans own other humans, that's a bad thing. That's called slavery. It's a demeaning thing. It's a, it's a mockery of human dignity. But when God owns humans, it's a mercy. It's a tremendous mercy. And where I want to go this evening is as Jacob articulates this this. Uh, uh, faith and hope that his family belongs to God, that they're owned by God. Where the human soul needs to go in our paths is a heart that grasps God in such a way that to be owned by him is our greatest desire. 
not something that we, we buck against, not something that we resent, not something that we find demeaning, but understand that we could be in no better place than under the ownership of a God who is holy, who is perfect, who is almighty, and who is omnipotent. And so that is what these words of Jacob are. He looks to God alone for their future, and he looks to God for their blessing. And it is a dramatic change in his family. If you've had opportunity to join us over the course of the, the, the series that we've gone through and all of the events of the lives in his family, the selling off of Joseph into slavery and all that God did through Joseph's rule in Egypt to intervene into this family and with mercy and to, and to reclaim this family out of chaos, there's actually a lot of drama represented around this table or this bed. David, or Jacob, is about to breathe his last and gathered with him, Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter of faith, says that by faith, Jacob mustered himself on his bed, raised himself on his staff, and he blessed Joseph and his children. And now all 12 children are in the room, and it is a dramatic change in this family of these 12 men gathered to listen to their father, they're not deceiving their father anymore. They're, they're not uh, rebelling against their father anymore. They are listening to their father's words of prophetic utterance over them, of this family that has been rescued from what was tremendous chaos. And that transformation is something that I think is the main point of the text as we look at it in the broader context of the story of the life of the family of Jacob. And here's what I think the main point of the text is. That believing and trusting, which is what faith is, believing and trusting that God is in control, which is how we've defined providence these last number of months and weeks, that God is in control, it transforms believers. Okay? I want you to, I want you to grasp that idea tonight. That providence isn't simply an idea for us to understand and to uh, mentally ascribed to. That providence, as it has been revealed in all of the events in the history of Jacob's family, is an, an experience that is intended for the transformation of those people who witness it. And that transformation is from fear to faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, where God, by His Spirit, floods the soul, floods the heart, floods the life of the believer with light, first of all, as opposed to darkness, and life, life as opposed to death, as God reveals himself in his marvelous greatness to his people. And so the purpose of this series, as we come to the end of this series, I want to emphasize that the purpose of it is not for us simply to be able to give a nice theological and sound definition of providence. And the, one of the definitions we've used is that God is in control even when we cannot see it. And it's a, it's a good definition, it's a simple definition, but we need more than simply being able to define providence as we come to this point in the life of this family. At this point in the story, we must grasp and witness the transformation that has occurred through the deeds of God's providence. It actually changed this family 
but actually make it made a difference in the life of Jacob, who was a man who was completely bowed over by fear. Remember him cringing in, in Canaan when they were without food and saying, now you can't take my son. I'm going to lose everything. I've lost Joseph. Now I'm going to lose Benjamin. And, and Judah stands up and speaks to his father reasonably, full of confidence in, in, in God. And the, that transformation in, in this family. And then they're all, of course, brought into Egypt, into the presence of Joseph, where Joseph reveals himself and shows them what God has done. But it comes to the point in the series where we stop and ask the question, well, so what? So God is in control. Who cares? What am I supposed to do with that? What we're supposed to do with it is understand that providence is more than just a theological idea. That providence is the path. Providence is the path that God lays for us from fear to faith, which is such a, a desperate need in the lives of believers. To be transformed from fear to faith. What a, a remarkable witness it is in the world in which we live. And there, there is so much to fear, so much that cripples us with fear. And to be transformed by witnessing the almightiness of God, the power of God, the greatness of God, the kindness of God that would so transform us that we would be full of faith instead of fear. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I trust. I trust in God. It's, it's so simple. It is so profound. You know, I've, I've sat across the table from people over the years, and I realize, and, and to my own soul as well, I realize you can't just tell people, stop that. Stop that. Stop being afraid. Don't be fearful anymore. It doesn't work. You need substance. You need the experience of grasping something that is true, an awakening of the soul to some of the, the grand spectacle that God puts on display in the deeds of his people. And so this story is for us, not just for Jacob's family. It's for us uh, to, through Jacob's family, see all that that God does. But I hope you can see the difference between these two definitions. One is an idea. One is a, uh, a theological concept. I, providence means that God is in control, as opposed to a definition that says providence is the path. Providence is the path from fear to faith. When we die, let's not go into the presence of God and think that God will be impressed because we know the definition of providence. <laughs> That's true of salvation as well. Boy, I can define providence. I can quote J.I. Packer. I can quote the pastor. I can, I can recite all the things that the church said. No, no have, have you experienced it? Can you, in the presence of God, say, your glory has flooded my life. I've walked with faith and confidence in you. And as I say, the same is true, of course, of salvation. It's not an idea. It is something that must be experienced. And so Jacob, with his family, gathered around him here represents this transformation, this path that goes from fear to faith in witnessing the greatness of God. As he has said over and over to this family, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I am, do you know this? I am God Almighty. Do you believe? It's remarkable. It's more than remarkable. That in this world in which we walk, there is almightiness. It makes all the difference in the world. Two words that I'm going to use to 
expound the rest of the, this idea. The first one is ownership. I've already mentioned that. I'm going to press that home a little bit more. And the second one is purpose, the, the purpose for the ownership. Why, why does God take ownership of these 12 uh, children of Jacob? But the first is ownership. And by faith, Jacob, in his words, in, in saying this is what your future holds and looking for God's blessing upon each one of them, he is invoking the divine prerogative to own. And do you know what I mean by the divine prerogative? Not pierogi, it's a different word. Uh, so if you get to pierogi, then go to provident, or to, uh, to prerogative. Prerogative means this. If you won the lottery and you had a million dollars and I came to you and said, how are you going to spend that money? You'd be able to spend that money any way you want without accountability to anybody. You can do whatever you want with every single dollar. That is your prerogative. The divine prerogative is exactly like that. Because you ask the question, well, why these 12? Why Jacob's children? Why, why these 12 men? They're ruthless. They're brutal. They're scandals. Scandals. <laughs> Why these 12? It is the divine prerogative that, that Jacob invokes, the, the blessing on these 12 children, that God would take possession of them, that he would own them. And that is a prerogative that belongs to the divine alone. The role of the worshiper is completely different. We ascribe to the divine that prerogative. Not to criticize, not to judge, not to be skeptical, not to stand in judgment of it and say, well, I don't think so. But to stand in worship saying, you are worthy. You alone are ascribed all of the, of the attributes of omnipotence and deity. And so that is what Jacob is doing here. And imagine the scene again. Literally, Jacob is on his deathbed. He is about to die. He's in a season of life of his curtain call. I'm just old enough where I'm starting to grasp the idea that what are the things I'm doing, I'm not going to be doing them forever. <laughs> Man, it never crossed my mind uh, a decade or two ago. And those of you that are young, it hasn't crossed your mind yet. Uh, but some of you know what I'm talking about. And this is a season of life that, that Jacob is in. All of the events, all the drama, all the, the things that Jacob has seen, all the things that he's smelled, all the things that his, his feet have walked in, all the circumstances and paths, they, they're all about to come to an end. It's a very profound moment in the life of this family as he gathers his 12 children around him. His life is about to come to its close. And so he invokes this divine prerogative on his children. And he, by blessing them, he is putting God's name upon them, invoking God's ownership of them. And it is a dramatic moment, not only in the family, but also in the Bible and in human history, that God, by his divine prerogative, identifies the 12 tribes of Israel. But these are the 12 that belong to God. They belong to him. Now through the rest of the scriptures, you know how God will talk about Jacob's family and the household of Jacob, the, the family of Jacob, or Jacob, Jacob in itself is used often through the scriptures to refer to the people of God. This is why it comes back to this particular chapter. And from now on, God would say to the descendants, the children of Jacob, you're mine. You belong to me. I've purchased you. 
And that's why God would come through Moses into Egypt and, and, and redeem the people out of Egypt, as you see in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, because of this very divine prerogative. They belong to me. The I have chosen to define this as God's people, and they belong to me. And I hope you can... I don't know, it's, an, it's stop and think about this for a minute. Ever been, ever been prophesied over? Jacob is prophesying over his people, and it is, I'm saying, an, an instrument of, of God's ownership on his people. And we need prophetic utterance, but it needs to come from God. Not from an institution, not from a people, not from a person. That's why cults have prophetic utterance and blessings. Is because it is a very real demonstration of ownership, coming under the authority of something, of someone. And it's something that we rejoice in, that, that there is uh, a prophetic utterance uh, over us through the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit, but for God and for no one else. To be owned by God is a marvelous thing. The second word is ownership, of the, is a purpose, the purpose of the ownership. And the reason God takes ownership of these people, of these 12 tribes, is for salvation and for messianic purposes and all that is fulfilled in the work of Christ. But I've always wondered when I hear it said that 12 is the number of perfection. If you've sat in church and you've heard preaching, for example, in the book of Revelation, we've gone through it, so you've heard that from this pulpit over and over again. 12 is the number of perfection. And when I hear that, the question I always ask is, well, that's really cool, but why? Why is 12 the number of perfection? What's so special about the number 12? And there are uh, many fascinating things, actually, that you can learn about the number 12. Mathematically, it's a very interesting number. In, in physics and in some of the natural sciences, it's a very interesting number. But biblically speaking, and sociolo sociologists would argue also in our modern history that this chapter, the identification of the 12, has had a very, very strong influence in the world in which we live in simple ways. Of why is there 12 eggs in a dozen? Why is there 12 donuts in a bag? Why is there 12 inches in a, in a foot? Why is there 12 numbers on that clock? And it is considered to be the number of perfection. But in biblical history, the reason that speaking theologically and biblically in the way that the number of, of, of 12 is used in the scriptures, the reason that it is a number of perfection comes back to this divine prerogative that God has chosen in his divinity to define the boundaries of the, the arena of his saving works amongst the tribes of Israel, amongst the tribes of Judah, the 12 sons of Judah. And so these are the people that God will define the area in which he will reveal his saving works. And then his unique purpose for them to be witnesses on earth of his glory. And so, it is to the 12 tribes of Israel that Moses would be sent to. 
It is the 12 tribes of Israel that God would descend on Mount Sinai and through Moses speak his very words to. It is to the 12 tribes of Israel that God sent uh, or, or spared from the death angel in Egypt. It's the 12 tribes of Israel that all put blood on their doorposts in order to be spared. That was the identifiable group. It was the family of Jacob some 400 years after this. This is the, the people that the prophets would speak to over and over again. Jacob, the family of Jacob. For example, when dealing with fear, as I spoke about earlier, in the book of Isaiah particularly, I used this text a few weeks ago. Jacob, you worm, why are you afraid? It's speaking to an identifiable group, which is the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 children of Jacob. These are the 12 tribes that God would would show his glory to, in the, first of all in the tabernacle, and then in the temple of Solomon, where his very presence would come and be manifest to them. This is where David, uh, the place where David himself longed to be, and the psalmists talk about. And it is the people that David would rule over, Solomon would, would rule over. And it's why uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, so what good is it to be a Jew? What advantage is there in being a Jew? And, and Paul says, well, much in every way. To them was given the covenant. God spoke his law to them. And so there's a very unique significance as this people are called upon. Now, not for their pride did God define the boundaries in this way. And if you read through all of the things that Jacob actually says about the sons, and, and they, it's, it's obvious that it was not because of their character that they earned this unique position. It was by God's mercy, by God's divine prerogative to take ownership of them so that they would be witnesses. Over and over it says to Jacob's family, you shall be my witnesses on earth in order to bring the nations in. Not for exclusivity. And the church is the same thing. We are an identifiable group that has a particular uniqueness and a difference in the world in which we live. But not because of our moral superiority, not because of our goodness that we've earned anything, but that distinctness just definitely needs to be there. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid of it. It's not arrogance. It's the place where God calls people into. And the purpose of that distinctiveness isn't exclusion, it's inclusion. That God would bring the nations into and to be in the midst of these 12 tribes and in through Christ, through all of the nations. And there's a reason why Jesus had 12 apostles. It's because Jesus understood that he himself was the fulfillment of all that God intended for the house of Jacob. That's why he had 12 apostles. And there is no salvation outside of the arena, outside of the boundaries that God defines for his saving works in the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, there are 12 gates on the city, on the New Jerusalem. And there are 12 foundations for those gates, representing the tribes of Israel and the apostles, representing all of the people of God, not just Israel, national ethnic Israel, but all of the people, all of the nations that God will bring into his mercy and saving works through the preaching of Christ. These are the people that expected the Messiah. And it's to Mary that the angel would come and say, 
there's a child in your womb, and that child will rule over the house of Jacob, these 12 tribes, forever. And that is why all of these Old Testament stories are in anticipation of Jesus who would come. Wow. That was a mouthful. That was a headful. You got it? <laughs> Remember, it's about transformation uh, more than anything else. And let me close again on that thought that we need God's blessing, that there is nothing more desirous for the Christian, for the disciple of God, than to be owned by God. I was reared in the church, raised in a church family, and I, I, I knew intuitively, instinctively, by what I was around, that, that this was true, that, that to be a Christian meant that you were owned by God. That you couldn't be a part-time Christian. It means that God takes possession of you. But my understanding of God was such that I didn't want his ownership in my life. And I think there's a lot of Christians that, that struggle with that. They know what Christianity is, but they struggle with a perception of God, of trusting him. Do I want that God? Do I have an inclination in my heart, an inclination in my soul to desire, not just acknowledge, not just submit to, but actually actively desire the ownership of God in my life. And God, by his mercy, woke me up. He woke me up to see him in the marvelous magnificence that he shows himself in the gospel and in Christ. And he awakened my soul to his kindness, to his goodness, to his holiness. And I use holiness in a very deliberate way. God is holy, and it means that he's perfect. It means that there is no safer place for the Christian to be than in the ownership of God, because he is holy. And that is how the Christian life is lived. And one of the ways that Christians show their unique way of thinking is in their vocabulary. Or sometimes we show our not so unique way of thinking in our vocabulary. But we should show something of the uniqueness of our of our thoughts, of our heart, of our, of our worldview, of our perception about God and the Christian life and the vocabulary that we use. Our, our language should be salty in, in a good way. And so consider the phrase very simply, God bless you. God bless you. When we say God bless, God bless you, it's not because somebody sneezed. It's not a cliche. It's not Christianese, and sometimes we, we, we flee from words that, oh no, they'll think I'm weird. Oh no, I'm speaking Christianese, and we, we've lost something of our, our deliberate distinctiveness. But when a Christian says to another believer, I personally don't believe it's, a, it's, it's the best thing or appropriate to say to an unbeliever, because there's, there's no anchor, there's no place for the blessing to rest. There, there's, there's nothing for it to come down upon. But to speak to another believer, God bless you. It's a, a unique and distinct way of desiring good for another believer and reflects our deepest needs every day. That we would experience God's ownership. Willingly, gladly. And that we would experience the dominion of God in our life and all of the kindness and all of the mercy that that brings into our lives and the transformation that it brings us from faith, from fear to faith. And there is no 
greater expression of kindness than for God to put his name upon us, for him to take possession of us, for him to own us because he is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous, and he is a God who never changes. And he is inexhaustible in his blessings in Christ. Would you please pray with me and we'll sing together again. Lord, help us uh, on, on this Lord's Day to profit from your word. These unique words in the scripture help us to understand not only their place in history, but their place in our soul. And I pray that we would be people who have a receiving place for these ideas, for these thoughts. That there is an anchor in us that can receive these, these things and hold on to them, lay hold of them, because you are great. And so, may your mercy be evident in the paths of our heart and soul. Pray in Jesus' name.